Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I'm here to accompany you once again into the murky world of horror fiction. Each week I'll be talking to a different horror author about the stories behind their stories, about how they write, and about what scares the hell out of them. This week's guest is an understated giant of contemporary horror. He's the man who plumbed the depths of fear in a fishing trip, and who comes back year on year with some of the best short fiction in the genre. It's John Langan, author of the collections Mr Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters, Safira and Other Betrayals, and the Bram Stoker award-winning novel The Fisherman. His latest collection, Children of the Fang and Other Genealogies, was released on the 18th of August by Word Horde. And as John will explain, this is a bumper serving. It's more packed than ever with creeping menace and dark delights. If you've read John's previous stuff, then you'll be glad to hear that this new batch of stories are as literary and elegant as ever. But they also feature killer mushrooms, haunted medieval knights, and the ghost of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. So there's, yeah, there's something for everyone. John and I talk about influence and inspiration, about balancing the everyday with the bizarre, and about the benefits of a good story title. As you'll hear, John is a true scholar of the genre and of American writing more broadly. He's got a lot to say about the impact that classic writers have had on himself and his peers. And he has a way of drawing comparisons between authors that are spot on, but also make you think, how did I not see that? So, without further hesitation, let's head to a creepy corner of New York's Hudson Valley and let's talk scared. So, hi, John. Um, Thanks for taking the time to talk to me and welcome to Talking Scared. You are our second guest. Um, How are things going for you over in the US in these mad times? Hi, Neil. Uh, Thanks very much for having me here. Uh, I'm honored to be the second guest. Things are, uh, well, just uh, on the one hand, I want to say just look at the news and you'll have some idea of how things are (laughs) over here. But speaking for me personally, uh, they're not too bad. They, uh, They could always be worse. Your name will be familiar to anyone with, you know, a cursory interest in literary horror. A lot of people will know you as the author of The Fisherman, and we will get to that without a doubt. Uh, But you spend a lot more time working with short fiction. And you were back this summer with your latest collection, uh, Children of the Fang and Other Genealogies. Unlike a novel, it's kind of unfair to ask an author to summarise their short story collection. But is there anything about this collection of stories that lends itself to an introduction at least? So, for example, what are we to take from the use of the word genealogies in the title? Yes, that's a good question. All of my collections, uh, I I try to find some kind of of thematic tether to to hold them together, however however loosely. You're, You're absolutely right that Short stories, in a short story, you can do things, you can, you can go places, as it were, that um, you may not go in, in longer fiction uh, for, for a variety of reasons. And every time I put together a collection, I, I try to ask myself, okay, what, what, uh, what is at least one thing that's holding these stories together? And, and to be quite honest, when I started with this collection, when I started putting the stories together, all I knew was that I wanted it to be a big collection, physically big. I, I had in mind um, and I've said this. I've said this before. I had in mind uh, the big collections of the '80s, things like uh, Stephen King's Skeleton Crew, or Robert McCammon's Blue World, or Clive Barker's Books of Blood. Especially if you imagine the the, the six volumes as as one mega volume. 
So that I, I knew I wanted that. But um, as I was looking over the stories, as I was writing the story notes, really, for the stories, uh, I, I started to realize that a lot of the a lot of the stories had appeared in various kinds of tribute anthologies to Robert Chambers, to Thomas Ligotti, to Laird Barron, uh, to the, the movie The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, to uh, a number of, of Lovecraft or, or Lovecraft-inflected anthologies, and even the ones that hadn't appeared in, in such anthologies still had been inspired in many cases by my desire to write, uh, let's say, a story in the manner of, of Jeff Ford, who's one of my, my writing heroes. And so I, I thought one way of approaching this collection then would be as a kind of partial family tree. So it would be possible to look at this and, and see me <laughs> sort of tracing my own lineage and saying, oh, look, here's here's uh, uh, Robert E. Howard and Michael Moorcock. And oh, look over here. Here's, uh, you know, here's Jeff Ford. Look over here. Um, here's even a, a contemporary, someone like like Laird Barron. And and give that as a as an organizer use that as an organizing principle for the for the collection. Okay, so so it's about inspiration then, and it's about predecessors. You mention striving uh, for the voice of certain writers, and you often allocate each story to a a kind of inspirational author, such as Peter Straub or something like that. When you're doing that, though, when you when you are writing these homages or or attempting these pieces, do you risk losing your own voice, or is it an act of literary ventriloquism, or is it is it something else? How do you manage that? I think um, there is, of course, always the risk of descending, if you will, into unintended parody. Whenever um, whenever you decide that, uh, oh, you know, I'd, I'd really, uh, you know, Lovecraft is really important to me. I'd, I'd really like to write a, a Lovecraft story, as it, as it were. So, yeah, I, I think there is that kind of uh, potential danger. But I think, I, I think in, um, I'm not even sure ventriloquism, okay, so here's what I think. I think sometimes it is very deliberate ventriloquism. You think, I, I really want to imagine the way that, a particular writer would phrase something or, or would approach something. I, I think ultimately it has more to do with having internalized those, those voices uh, and, and then being able to draw on them in your own work. There's, there's probably, you know, I, I, studied, I studied martial arts for a, a, a long time, a, a couple of different styles. And I, I sometimes reach for comparisons, uh, for, for my writing comparisons. Uh, I, I draw on them from martial arts. And, and one of the things I think about is how in, in martial arts, you, know, you, you have to learn certain things. You have to learn certain techniques. You have to learn certain forms, uh, combinations of, of techniques, sometimes quite extensive. And that's the, you know, the early part of your apprenticeship as, um, as a martial artist. And what you're striving for ultimately is to to do those forms to to execute those moves in a way that is let's say exemplary but which is which part of part of it being exemplary is that it also comes from you and who you are and how you execute those those moves so i i think that when and 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 you know i i should add that that i've had a man like a lifelong interest it seems but but certainly um the last maybe 30 years in matters of influence and and the way that we 
writers and other artists deal with with influence. And so I, I, I and and how influence and originality work back and forth with with one another. Um, and I I think that in some way influence and originality may in fact be tied up with with one another. That there, there may be some way in in which your originality consists in the way that you take your your influences and use them. I, I'm not even sure that the notion, you know, sometimes people will talk about transcending influence and, and whatever. I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that's possible, but maybe what is possible is to assimilate influence to such a degree that it becomes unmistakably you, even as simultaneously somebody can say, oh, you know, that that's, that's him all right, but but I still hear, you know, I, I hear the traces of, you know, Straub, say, would, would be a big one for me in the, in the work. Um, and, and I realized that seems paradoxical. I think it was uh, Nick Mamatas said to me once, you know, you can't have both. You can't, <laughs> you can't, you're either original or, or you're imitative. But, but I kind of think maybe, maybe you can have both. Maybe that, that paradox is where, is where originality in art really, really comes from. Okay, so that's really interesting to me, and I have a list of questions here, and I'm, I'm going to leap ahead uh, because you've you've prompted something. So before I, before I get to that, first of all, how much is is Lovecraft an an influence in your work? Would you say? I would say actually not a lot directly. I didn't read Lovecraft when I was a kid, and I was reading a lot of other horror writers. Um, I read much more of Robert E. Howard, say. And that was because I was reading the Conan the Barbarian comic books in the in the 70s. And I thought, this is awesome. And uh, and at, at that same time, may, maybe because of the success of those comics, gosh, one of the, the publishers sort of hired Elsprague de Camp and Lynn Carter to go through Howard's stories and arrange them in chronological order because he wrote them out of order. And then on, on top of that, to to fill in missing stories, things that, that Howard had maybe alluded to in his letters or suggested in other stories or, or what have you. So I read a tremendous amount of, of Howard when I was a kid. I also read a, a fantastic book of Howard's stories called Wolf's Head. I think it was just called Wolf's Head and Other Stories, but which had just some, some fantastic, uh, frightening horror stories. And um, so that made much more of an impression on me than, uh, than Lovecraft did. It wasn't, I, I knew who Lovecraft was, but ironically, maybe the, the first book of Lovecraft's I read, I, I was probably somewhere around 15 or 16, and I, I picked up the uh, the Dream Quest of Unknown Cadeth, and mm-hmm. I, I just thought, what the heck is this? You know, it, it, it just, I, it, when I was older, I became much more interested in it from a kind of a, a literary critical perspective, but as a as a young writer, it just had, it, it had very little interest for me. And it wasn't really until I got to college and even graduate school where one of my professors, Bob Waugh, was a, a really, really, to my mind, really important scholar of Lovecraft. He wrote a couple of, of brilliant books on Lovecraft, one called uh, The Monster in the Mirror and the other called The Monster of Voices, which are collections, uh, edited collections of his essays about Lovecraft, which place Lovecraft in all kinds of amazing contexts and which deal I think Bob has written the, the single best essay dealing with Lovecraft's racism and anti-Semitism and, and how it informs his fiction. And, and so Lovecraft became, you know, kind of interesting to me as a, as a writer. And, and I could appreciate him in, 
how would you put it, you know, in, in a kind of professional sort of way, I guess. And then also, as I say, in this, in this literary critical way, but I, I never felt him as a, a sort of presence lurking amongst my, my own work um, or, or my own influences. Having said this, you know, I consider Stephen King, for example, a massive formative influence. And, and Ramsey Campbell, for that matter, has been important to me at, at different points, too. And, you know, Lovecraft is absolutely crucial to who they become as writers. So, you know, you could make the argument, if, if you wanted, that I still can't escape him. He's there in the background of my, of my family tree, whether I, I want him to be or not. Certainly in, in writing for Lovecraft-inspired or inflected anthologies, I've, I've, I've had to deal with him more directly. What I found kind of interesting about that uh, for myself is, is that whenever I try to write a, a Lovecraft story or what I think of as a Lovecraft story, the majority of the time, I wind up focusing on the, this sort of very human dimension. It, it almost becomes more like a sort of a Raymond Carver story with tentacles or something like that. And um, it, it almost seems to be this kind of, I, I don't know what, creative perversity on my part that, you know, I, I'm, you might see Cthulhu lumbering around in the background or, or something like that. But I'm, I'm much more interested in, in this character in the foreground who's, who's trying to get his lawnmower to work or, or something like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think, I, I think the Lovecraft wave that we've, we've seen that the last maybe decade or so may be subsiding a bit, but, but I'm not sure I could be, I could be completely wrong about that. Um, but it seemed to me that for a while it was zombies, then it was Lovecraft. And now I'm not sure what it's, what it's going to be. And for me, the thing that really defines you and, and makes you stand out is that you manage to take this kind of cosmic, galactic, weird genre that everyone, as you say, that this way we've been writing that is often considered Lovecraftian. You manage to take that and then you make it about the guy whose lawnmower won't start. And the, the story that really struck home for me is Inundated. Now, would you like to, because I want to talk about this, would you like to just briefly give us a pricey of, of the story Inundated before I give away too much. Sure. Um, Inundated is, is a very short story, which I'm, I'm not, I don't usually write, or I haven't written as much in, in years gone by. And it was, it was actually prompted by, I think it was Aaron French was the editor who contacted me and said that he was going to be guest editing an issue of the Lovecraft Ezine, I think it was. And, and he said to me, the theme is going to be Atlantis. And could you do something with, you know, sort of Atlantis and Lovecraft? <laughs> and, and of course, you know, there were all kinds of, of, uh, of, of nutty uh, kinds of, of ideas that, that, that occur, you know, the, the uh, sunken continents rising and, and all this kind of stuff. And at the time, my wife and I were renting, actually, it was the last house we rented before we moved into, into the, the house I'm in now, the house we bought. And it was this lovely house in, in a lot of ways, but it was, uh, it was positioned on a, on a hillside. And whenever we got a lot of rain, the basement would, uh, would flood. And it would flood in this particular way because the house was built on a, on a hillside. The water would flow into the back of the basement and then flow through to the front. Um, and of course, it would also, the, the rain would just pour down the hillside into the street. And if the rain was heavy enough, it would, it would flood the street. And, and so that... That became for me this the the you know one kernel I, I guess of the of the idea that you you know you just have this flooding that that just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming 
and I, I'm, I'm not, I, it's funny. I love the beach. I love the ocean, but I, I also am terrified of swimming. I'm not a great swimmer. Uh, when I was a kid, I was repeatedly dunked in the family pool by, by my father and various uncles. And, and I just found that terrifying. I just, I just, um, I hated it. I, I still hate it. And, and so the, the thought of, of just all that water appearing seemed in and of itself to me just really frightening. And, and so I, I thought, well, you know, what if you had this story that's, that's about like everything is just flooding. Water is just sort of pouring in from, from every place. And, and what if people are trying to, to survive, you know, they're, they're, they're building little improvised rafts and, and such in their garages and in their yards and that as, uh, uh, and trying to figure out, you know, where are we going to go? Are we going to sail to the tops of mountains or, or, uh, what, you know, what will be left? And I wanted to have, you know, one glimpse at the, t- toward the end of the story of maybe one of the, the sort of invaders, um, like, like an Atlantean figure. And, and my Atlantean figure, I think, probably comes out of Marvel Comics. I, I think it's probably, man, I can never remember, Atuma, maybe, who's, who's the Submariner's, like, nemesis. <laughs> I, I think that's it. But, but I just kind of like the idea of sticking that guy, uh, sticking that guy in there as, as just this kind of an emblem of just how profoundly, as if the, as if the flooding wasn't enough but an emblem of, of how profoundly things were going to change. And yeah, it just kind of, it, it is just a, a, a fragment almost, or a little slice of, of life. There's no, there's no great resolution or, or, or what have you. So this is a, just a very brief snippet from the story in which you're describing what is happening on a global scale, or at least on a national scale, whilst these, these small individuals are just simply trying to pack the car. So this is the paragraph. You write that, the local radio station's last broadcast included a report of something sighted in that direction, a grey leathery hump the size of a barn rising in the vicinity of what had been Sturgeon Pool and then sinking again. For the last three days, similar stories have come from up and down the eastern US as the waters erupted. Before they lost Wi-Fi and cable, there were images, photographs and videos, the majority of them blurred, full of immense shapes, a few frighteningly clear, a grey fin rising behind a sailboat, something like a hand grabbing the bridge of a trawler. Anecdotal evidence indicates creatures larger still, capsizing Coast Guard vessels, shouldering aside supertankers. I love that because that absolutely just keys into my kind of childhood delight of monster movies and what are these things beneath the waves. But my question is, how do you stop there? How do you decide this is a fragment rather than a kind of eight eight volume epic novel well i think it's interesting because that technique is is one i'm very conscious of drawing on from from king's work and from barker's work it it was one of the things that i i dearly loved in, in both their writings was the way that both king and barker would have a character just drop a reference to something and and in that single reference would be suggested a vast shadowy world behind it. And I loved that. I loved that feeling that there was just more out there in their universes. It's funny. I mean, I suppose you, you could argue with some reason that, that they get that in turn from Lovecraft, that that's what Lovecraft ultimately is. He's always trying to get to, but he just, he can't stop. 
<laughs> he can't, you know, he's, and, and sometimes it works, you know, I, I mean, it's, sometimes in the, you know, I, I think the call of Cthulhu works as a, as a story or, or, or at the mountains of madness works that, that he's always trying to get to that, that sense of, of something, of something vast, something larger. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think in my case, it probably, to, to be honest, had something to do in the case of that story with just length requirements and, and time requirements. I think I didn't have much time to get it done and it, it wasn't going to be terribly long. But at the same time, once in a blue moon, a story idea like that occurs to me where, where I think, no, no, just a glimpse. This is, this is just going to be a glimpse. I think maybe part of it is that the, how would I put this? That the eight volume novel, you know, where, where you have these, like a, like a raft city being built, you know, and then people trying to fight off these kaiju. And it's true. I was a huge, I, I remain a huge fan of the kaiju genre. So I, I, any chance to sneak a giant monster into a story and I'll take it. I think that that was, was not at that point, a story I was particularly interested in writing. Although it's funny now that I'm talking about it, I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe you could, uh, <laughs> It's uh, although that sounds a lot like China Miedel's novel, The Scar, you know, where you have that that city made of of all the the floating city made of all the boats lashed together. But yeah, it, it was not at the time something that I I felt uh, inclined to pursue. I just I just liked the idea of 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 the moment where things have have changed kind of irrevocably. You know that that I feel like okay, there's a natural disaster. There's there's the water coming in and such. And I guess I, I sort of like the idea of Atlantis, the Atlantis reference, because we always think of one of the things I guess we think of with Atlantis is, you know, the, the city returning. And I liked the idea that that it might be realized on this global scale that you have this like watery dimension or watery world that's kind of rising through and into into our world. But here's the thing, you know, we live in the age of global warming. And we, we know the seas are going to rise and, and what have you. So it might be possible, I suppose, for a character in this sort of situation where there's this crazy flooding happen. Uh, heck, even, even a few years ago when we had Superstorm Sandy here, um, we had massive flooding in this, in this area. So, so flooding, insane flooding is, is not in and of itself maybe going to make a character think, oh, it's all changed. And, and weird pictures, uh, we live in the age of deep fakes and all this kind of stuff. But having the Atlantean warrior or whoever standing at the foot of your truck or the head of your head of the road, that's that's the thing itself. That's the moment where you think, uh, all right, it's all it's all different. It's all even more different than I than I thought it was gonna be. So I've long thought of you as a kind of extremely literary horror writer. And I think some of that is the 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 impact of, of the fisherman. And I know it's a kind of designation that you have struggled with yourself from reading other other comments by you but what i was really struck by with this collection more than any of your previous ones is just the amount of fun involved you've got children of the fang the title story which is very robert e howard and it, and it, it it's just fun the horn of the world's ending another story is kind of kind of like a, a medieval fantasy romp and then there's a story with a strange title called Episode 3 on the Great Plains in the Snow, which features the ghost of a Tyrannosaurus Rex in the middle of a kind of little bighorn-style battle. They're quite crazy, fun scenarios. Is that something you set out to achieve intentionally, to write a more fun, dare I say, pulpy set of stories? Yes, absolutely. I, I've 
I'm interested in pushing myself further as a as a writer. My early stories were very, I think, very self consciously, you know, sort of Jamesian. Um, the, the first couple, in in particular, and, and I, I I remain fascinated by call it sort of the drama of consciousness, which which I think is of a special interest when dealing with matters of the supernatural or the inexplicable, you know, whatever whatever word we'd like to uh, append to that. I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that people perceive things. In, in more recent years, it's, it's what's really drawn my interest towards Robert Aikman's work, um, where I, I think that, that, that you know, questions of perception are, are just at the heart of, of what's going on in, in his work. At the same time, I, I wanted to see, and I, and, I, and I want to continue to see, what kinds of things I can do I, I suppose whenever anybody says something is a terrible idea or a bad idea, even if that someone is me, that there's a, a part of me that thinks, is it though? Is it really? Or, well, okay, yes, it's a bad idea, but is there any way you could do it, you know, in an interesting way? So there are, and, and I will, I will, I will set myself uh, challenges or, or, or other people will set me challenges when I, uh, when my older son was very, very young, man, like 10 or 11 or something like that, you know, I, I asked him what, you know, he had suggested actually that I write a story about a skeleton, a monster skeleton, which had produced Mr. Gaunt, which was my, my second published story. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, oh, well, you know, the, the kid's guy, he's onto something. So I said, oh, what do you think daddy should write about next? And he said, you know, like Godzilla, like a big monster. So ever since that, that time I've, I've been trying to write, uh, one of the things I've been trying to do is to write a kind of convincing kaiju story. So yeah, it's there a little bit in, in the background of inundation. It's, uh, it's there in, in some ways it, although albeit in a really bizarre kind of way in episode three. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that I'm not done with it either. I'm, I'm sure that I'll, I'll keep coming back to that because that's one of those monsters that's very, very difficult to do in a convincing way for, for me, you know, you can like a vampire can always sneak in amongst the populace or, or what have you. And, you know, we have the zombie apocalypse. We can sort of accept, Oh, everything has changed. The, the, the all the zombies have shown up, but Godzilla or, or whatever, which, you know, as I said, you know, I, I, those are, those kinds of movies remain deeply, deeply close to my heart, but they're still, they're, they're difficult to do convincingly. And so that keeps drawing me back to them, I, I suppose. And I think too, you know, it's, it's, those kinds of adventure stories or, or, or stories that have a, a, you know, a very direct struggle against a monster or something like that, those, those present their own kinds of challenges for me as a, as a writer. And I, and I, I think about the writers uh, I've read and I admire who write like, like really gripping adventure stories. I think, man, I would, that's something I would like to try to do as well. I think that's something you definitely did do with with Children of the Fang, the, the title story, which I, I won't I won't summarize because I want I'd like the readers to come to that fresh. But just suffice to say, it is it's a very traditional kind of story told with with a kind of modern modern tone. But why did you choose that story to be the title story of the collection? Is there any particular reason? I'm always interested in why certain stories are picked to stand for the whole. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting about it is, um, I actually picked the, I just, I love that title and I just thought this is a good title. And it, and I, I wonder, you know, I hadn't, I, I didn't have the, the second part of the, of the title and other genealogies un, until quite a bit later. 
And when I thought in other genealogies, I thought, oh, well, of course, that works with children of the Fang. And I almost wonder if on, again, on you know, some sort of subconscious, deeply subconscious level, there was a, a part of my brain that was kicking that title up there because it knew that, that, that genealogies, that was what was going to, to be the theme that held things mm-hmm. together. You know, a, a good title... A good title can do a lot. Uh, can do a lot for you. Uh, we we shouldn't judge books on titles or cover illustrations or anything like that. Let's you know to to be practical. They matter. Um, and and so yeah, I, I really liked the idea of Children of the Fang. It, it had a, a sort of a a kind of cheesy, pulpy kind of flavor that I that I liked. But at the same time, it worked with that. It worked with that genealogy thing as as well. Yeah, that, that makes sense the, the minute you point it out, children and genealogy. I, that hadn't occurred to me. Apologies. As I say, it's a really fun collection, and I recommend anyone read it who may, who may have been put off by your kind of literary credentials. This literary horror thing that gets thrown around at you and others, I think sometimes is as much a, a curse as a blessing. What do you think about that? Do you think we even need the term literary horror anymore, or do you think it is just a kind of snobbery? On the one hand, I have always believed um, from the the time I was a a young reader, although I don't know if I would have articulated it in quite this way, but I've I've always believed that there's plenty of horror already that's literary. If we recognize that literary is an adjective, if we recognize that it refers to certain textual characteristics and, and I, I think, in particular, to, to to maybe try to be a little bit a, a little bit less jargony about it, uh, to to say that you know the literary Calvino says something to the effect of it's it's never done saying what it has to say to us. I think it's Nabokov says that that it's it's the the literary is that which we are always rereading. And so when I think about it that way, I, I think about you know a book like Peter Straub's Ghost Story, let's say is a book that when I was a kid, I just returned to over and over and over again, because I, I kept getting more out of that book. And in that regard, then, I, I think that that fits the definition of, of literary. I think there are maybe books that we return to, or, or texts, if you will, that we return to. We return to because they're safe and they're familiar. And, and what we get out of them is that safety and that familiarity. And, and I'm not sure that that's quite literary in the same way that I mean. And, th- and there's nothing, um, nothing wrong with those. But, but I think that I, I compare them sometimes to, to fast food. When I go to McDonald's to get a Big Mac, I, I'm going to get, I, like, I know exactly what I want, exactly what I'm going to get. And it's the satisfaction of getting exactly what I want. Uh, having said that, like, it will never get any better. I mean, it will never get any worse, but it will never get any better. There will never be a moment where, where I say, ah, oh, that Big Mac, that was the Big Mac. No, it's, it's just always going to be, I wanted a Big Mac and I got it. So I, I think that there are certain kinds of entertainment that do that for us. And that's fine. Sometimes you just want a Big Mac. Sometimes you just want your comfort food. But there are certainly other meals where you think, ah, oh, that was an amazing experience. That was, you know, I remember the taste of that. And so I, I, I think about the literary in general, whatever genre you apply it to as that which we can keep getting sustenance from that which we can we can keep finding new things in so i i think i i think that in that sense in in a kind of literary critical sense if you will it's it's maybe not a bad or or it's it's 
it, it could be a descriptive term, I, I guess, maybe more than such a value-laden term. I understand, though, that it's, it's often used these days as a, a marketing category. It's a way to, to try to, to sell something to people. You know, horror stories for people who don't like horror stories. And I, I understand the, the commercial impetus behind that, but I certainly understand a writer whose work, you know, who's been working to the best of, of her or his ability and, and doing their best to write things that are, uh, you know, what I would consider literary, but have never been recognized that way. I can understand them feeling resentful and thinking, who do these guys think they are? You know, I, how, how are they literary? You know, do you think you're better than I am? That sort of thing. So I, I think that I can, understand and, and w when it comes to those kinds of matters marketing matters those have to do with money those don't have to do with literary merit and, and i think that that's maybe something that's important to, to keep in mind that a lot of what gets described as literary horror which look it, it you know it may have those characteristics but but nonetheless if a publisher is calling something literary horror um, it's because they're trying to sell books it's not because they particularly think it's literary in, in that sense. They're just, they, they see this as a marketing category that they can exploit. And, and so I would say to, to writers, keep that in mind and possibly to readers as, as well. Keep that in mind that, that these are, these are publishing categories, they're marketing categories, and they don't necessarily describe what the thing is with, with as much accuracy as, as we might like. You write quite a lot about writing in, in some of these stories, and, and particularly about the publishing industry. There's a kind of window into that world, particularly in the story Into the Darkness Fearlessly, which is a kind of Roman Cliff, I suppose is the wrong word, but it, it's, it, it's a slightly meta staging of a horror story in the publishing industry. But it's, it's very kind of cruel and narcissistic and bleak. And I, I wonder if there's any truth in, in that story or in terms of how you see the writing world or the publishing world as being. Well, it was written for a uh, Thomas Ligotti tribute anthology. And so to a certain extent, bleakness seemed to be the order of the day. Um, although if I'd been really inventive, I suppose, I would have written a Thomas Ligotti comedy, you know, if such a thing is even possible. And I was inspired in part by um, a little detail that Laird Barron had included in his story, uh, More Dark, um, which talked about an editor who had been, or a writer, I think it was, who had been murdered by uh, by another writer. And and, uh, and that was the, the sort of kernel for it. I think that every writer knows editors, knows of editors who are maybe a, a little more full of themselves than, than we as writers feel they, they should be. And I'm sure there are plenty of editors who feel the same way about writers. Who do these guys think they are? Some of what I was thinking about was, was that, you know, sort of poking fun, I guess, at, at um, sort of self-important, well, both, both editors and writers, I suppose, and, and trying to figure out in, in the midst of all that, how to work, a, you know, Ligotti is really interested a lot of the time in texts and textualism. And so I was also trying to figure out, you know, how do I work those things, those things in? And I also wanted to have some really sleazy sex in it because I, I thought that was not, that was not a Ligotti thing, you know? And, and so that was my moment where I thought I, I want to, I want to take it a little bit further than I think Ligotti would, uh, would take it. 
So that brings me perfectly. That answer gives me the perfect segue into something that Paul Tremblay prompted me to ask you. Um, I spoke to Paul last week for this show and afterwards, obviously you, you're good friends. Uh, and afterwards I sent him an email saying, what should I ask John? And he, he told me to ask you why you write about sex so much. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think I do, but maybe, <laughs> maybe it's more there than I, I recognize. It was funny because in in my last collection, Safira uh, and Other Betrayals, the, the, the title story of that is, is actually a short novel. And it's about a woman who's chasing a succubus uh, across the country to kill her. And so there's some pretty, some pretty explicit sex in that because I thought, you know, it's a, a succubus story. You know, like, like it's a sex demon. You, you have to acknowledge what the thing is. It, I, I, for some reason, I, I was thinking about about that story and this story and and a few others, and and I thought, well, I guess you know, I guess the erotic features in my work maybe more than I would I would necessarily think of it as as doing. I, I think in an in an odd way about a, a comment. Actually, man, this is like, I, I would have read this 30 or 35 years ago where uh, someone was interviewing Stephen King and he was talking about Straub saying to him uh, that he hadn't really discovered the erotic in his work. And he was like, I've got three kids. I know about the erotic. I think what Straub was talking about was, was more that sense of those kind of Freudian, you know, primal drives towards eros and thanatos, uh, sex and death. I, I think that I've, I've wanted as a writer to remain open to the the role of both of those you know in a lot of horror fiction obviously we deal with the death drive or, or versions of, of the death drive self-destruction whatever an externalized version of self-destruction in the form of the monster or, or whatever but I, I think that the 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 erotic can be you know obviously as as powerful um and as as powerful as shaping force in our our lives the the force of desire and the way that desire can be formed around, I mean, I, I guess desire really implies a lack, doesn't it? You know, there, there's something you don't have that you, that you need. And, and obviously we think about that in very physical, very sexual terms. It, it may function in, in more abstract ways, I guess, than, than that. Um, I, I kind of like the idea, I guess, in, in horror fiction of coming back to the body to, to a certain extent, because it's. It, I guess if there's a concern I have about my own horror fiction, it's that it, it might it might become a little too cerebral for its own good, and so I think um, steering things back to to the body and you know sex obviously is is a way to to balance that uh, to balance that out. It's kind of funny, I guess, because when I I, I seem to recall anyway the, the horror novels and such that I read in. In the eighties, anyway, there was sex all over the place, including in Stephen King and in Barker. Oh yeah, absolutely, Barker's. Yeah, yeah, and and this may be, you know, as, as much as anything, it, it may be evidence of a deeper evidence of, of Barker's uh, impact on me than than I, you know, necessarily even even been aware of. That's quite reassuring in a way because I'm I'm trying to put together my own novel, and I I realized in the in the plotting and the planning that my entire novel hinges upon sex and sex demons and the kind of things you're talking about. And it, it kind of made me reflect myself and think, am, am I the kind of person who would 
who would write a story about a sex demon, but it but it seems I am. So it's good to know that other people are doing that as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm making a success of it, so that that's slightly reassuring. I think Paul was potentially trying to stitch you up with that, but it's it's actually prompted a kind of rich vein of conversation. That's quite good. Speaking of Paul, though, you're you're good friends. Um, Stephen Graham Jones of um, Only Good Indians fame. He wrote the intro to this collection. Laird Baron, it, it does feel like you're a bit of a collective, you guys, almost kind of like a contemporary horror rat pack. Is that is that true? Well, you know, the uh, the tailored suits haven't arrived yet, but once they do, watch out. No, uh, yes, absolutely. Although, you know, the, the, okay, so what I would say is there's a group of, of writers and uh, Paul Laird, Stephen, uh, Livia Llewellyn, uh, Michael Sisko, Nathan Ballingrid, Glenn Hirschberg, just off the top of my head, Victor Laval, with whom I, I feel uh, particularly close and I, and I feel a, a particular kind of rapport. And I, I, I feel that we're all trying to do really interesting things with, um, with horror narratives. And in a, in a simple, a simplistic kind of way, I, I think that I think that what we're trying to do is to bring horror material together with other kinds of material. And, and I, I, I go back to, to the seventies, I guess, to, to King and Straub, you know, if you think about, you know, what King does is, is King takes all that Lovecraftian material and then he smashes it together with American naturalism with, uh, with Norris and Dreiser and John D. McDonald too. And what Straub does is take that horror material and he smashes it together with, uh, with Henry James, but also with, with say, like uh, Iris Murdoch. And I, I think that that, and Ramsey Campbell takes Lovecraft and smashes him together with Nabokov and uh, Graham Greene. And, and so I, I think that we, I, I kind of see us doing similar kinds of things, that, that we've inherited this, this sort of horror material, um, which now, of course, includes King and, and Straub, and what we're doing in a lot of cases, you know, you look at Laird's work and, and you see Laird taking the sort of cosmic horror that you associate with Lovecraft, right? And smashing that together with uh, Cormac McCarthy, let's say, and Dan Sean. Or, you know, you see, um, you see Paul taking a lot of, of stuff that I think derives a lot more from, from say, Stephen King. Um, and then smashing that together with a lot of more contemporary um, uh, experimental fiction. Um, and and so on. So I, I I think that there's something really interesting going on there. And uh, you know, what's worth noting, I guess, for me is that I became friends with all of 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 these folks because of my admiration for their work. You know, I I Laird and I published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in consecutive months. I published in whatever it was, August. He published in September and. Gordon Van Gelder, who was then editing the magazine, contacted me and said, hey, you should really check out this guy's work. And, you know, it started up this correspondence. But our correspondence was based on admiration for one another's work. And same thing with Paul. Um, I can still remember in, in Stephen's case, um, the first story by him that I read. It was a, a story called Raphael that was in Cemetery Dance Magazine. And I can remember reading about the first half of the story and thinking, ah, oh, okay, he's setting up, you know, what looks like this very well written, but but a kind of like a what would you call it a literary horror story, a story that is is going to cheat a bit at the end, 
And then you get about maybe two thirds of the way through, and all of a sudden, it's it's just an out and out insane horror story. And I can I still remember that. I can still remember that feeling of, you know, it was like seeing somebody like an acrobat or something just doing this amazing move, and you were like, holy cow, how did they, you know, how did they do that? I, I think our friendship is 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 based in part on a real respect for one another's work and and for the integrity with which everybody approaches it. You know, nobody, none of us is getting rich doing this. Um, I wish we all would. I wish, you know, great success for everybody, but um, we're, we're doing the, the work because we love to do it. And, and it, it means something to us. And, and I really respect that and, and really respond to that. I've never, I've never thought about Ramsey Campbell as being a Lovecraftian Graham Greene. That's fascinating. No, it's it's interesting that you say you're not getting rich off this because that brings me to a, a slightly positive point about your friendship and your group with these guys. In that, obviously, you're all very well known in your field and you're all very successful writers. And some of you in that collective are breaking through at different rates, but you're all breaking through. But obviously, you know, no one in horror generally these days, with the possible exception of like Joe Hill, nobody has that eighties status stephen king's bestseller itis as they used to say that you know he couldn't help but have a hit it feels like it feels like in the 80s and the early 90s there were these totems in the genre that were kind of islands unto themselves and i know that straub and king wrote the talisman and, and black house but aside from that very high profile collaboration it felt like they were very distinct monoliths in horror fiction Whereas it feels much more these days like horror is a more democratic, more permeable kind of community. And I've, I've found just from just from reaching out to people to do this podcast, because I've got like the first dozen guests lined up and they're all people of decent stature, excellent stature. But And the fact that I've had that response really implies that there is a lot more, as I say, it's a much, it's much more open door. And, and that feels positive. That feels really positive that there is this this space and a, and a community as opposed to masthead authors. Do you think that's right? Or have I taken a slightly more positive, idealistic view than is real? No, I, I think that's absolutely the case. I, I, right from the get-go, I, um, I found it, I, I found the horror community very welcoming. And, you know, I guess I compared it to um, the, the sort of mainstream literary community. And um, who who always seemed to me in my in my interactions with them, which which were brief, you know, relatively speaking, always seemed much more guarded and and competitive, and and to be much more concerned about, um, I, I don't know, you know, it was as if there was a sort of finite amount of attention that that could be given to anyone, and if I were to praise you, well, that would necessarily diminish the amount of attention that could be given to me, so I had to be careful about it and so on, whereas. The, the people that I found um, in, in genre in general, in the fantastic genres in general, were very welcoming and very, uh, very kind and, and very supportive. I, I think in the case of um, the, the horror guys in, in particular, it, it may have had something to do with the fact that a, a lot of us congregated at um, a, a convention called ReaderCon, which was held or, or which is held outside uh, in Massachusetts, outside Boston, every uh, or you know, until this year, every July. And um, we, the horror people, the horror crowd, we've always been kind of the minority crowd there. 
And it's one of the funny things I've noticed that there is a sort of stratification, you know, even within the fantastic genres where science fiction and fantasy people will argue about, you know, which is the real literature of the fantastic. But they can both agree that, you know, whichever one it is, it's definitely not horror. <laughs> it's definitely not those sort of freaks in the corner, you know, chewing on their bones or, or whatever. And so I think there was a certain kind of solidarity, a, a certain feeling that, you know, that way. It was also, we had, you know, we're all roughly the same age, um, late 40s, early 50s. We grew up sharing a, a lot of, of popular culture with one another. So a, a lot of time when, you know, when Laird and Paul and I and, and uh, some of our other friends will hang out, we spend far too much time exchanging Simpsons references with one another, you know, and, and just, just making each other laugh. And, and I think that 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 was a that was really a, a big deal for us that that kind of that kind of support yeah was was really crucial and 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 i don't think i don't think we could have given it to one another for this long if we didn't believe in one another's work i i think if i really thought that paul was a terrible writer or there just was nothing to stephen graham jones it would be difficult you know year after year after year after year to to keep praising them and and so yeah, part of it is is um, is this this feeling that we're really just in sync with one another, and that that despite the fact that we have very different backgrounds, there there are also all these all these surprising points of of contact. Not you know not only the Simpsons, for example. And I think that that and you know it's interesting. I mean, part of uh, sort of thinking about it in the context of those monoliths. I mean, that is probably a point of contact for us: the fact that we all read Stephen King, you know, and and, and that he had a profound influence on all of us, and and Straub, and and uh, you know, as as well. Uh, it may be that that those monoliths are actually what sort of brought us together in in some ways, um, or or part of of what allowed us to bring ourselves together. It's quite the insight because obviously you're mentioning a lot of names that to to a horror fanboy like me are quite you know they're, they're stellar names and it, it's quite cool to think about you guys as this this network and uh, of individuals that you know one day I may meet at a conference or our our listeners may one day meet at a conference that's it's quite a thrilling thrilling prospect. Before we wrap up today, I couldn't obviously talk to you and, and not discuss the fishermen. No doubt you've talked it to death and you'd rather talk about new things you're doing, but there's a reason that book is so popular. As I said to Paul last week, I think along with A Head Full of Ghosts, I think The Fisherman and A Head Full of Ghosts are probably the most, or will, will be seen in retrospect as the most important American horror novels, novellas maybe in your case, but American horror novels of, of the last decade. For the, the, the few people who, who aren't aware of it, could you give us a potted history of the fisherman and kind of tell us where the idea came from? Sure. Um, when, when I started off writing uh, and, and publishing um, my, my horror stories, I was very much afraid I would run out of ideas. I, I work very slowly. Um, there, there's, there were all these anxieties I had about, about having broken through into, into print about maintaining that. And so I, I, I gave myself several cushions. <laughs> One of them was, okay, I'm going to write a story a year. Uh, I figured I could accomplish that. And um, I thought if I could sell a story a year, the way that publishing works at the magazine level is that it usually takes about a year for, for a story that, that is accepted for publication now 
to appear in print. And so I thought I, if I could do that, then it would mean that I would have lots of time to work on the next story. And then if I could get that accepted, I would have lots of time to work on the story after that and, and so on. So that was the first thing. The second thing was, was I thought, because I was at, at the time still working on, a, on a, an abandoned, ultimately, PhD in, in English, because I was, I was very much aware of, of uh, uh, the literary, uh, literary history in all kinds of ways, I, I thought that, that what I could do to, to help to generate ideas was to write stories that kind of bounced off uh, classic American uh, horror stories in, uh, in different ways. And, and maybe not even just uh, horror stories. So, so my second story, Mr. Gaunt, is um, it, it's very much in dialogue with Henry James. And it, it, but as much as anything, it's in dialogue with his, his short novel, What Maisie Knew, uh, which is a, a story about um, a, a child who, who goes through a, whose parents go through a really nasty divorce and whose step-parents then begin an affair with each other. It's a crazy book. Anyway, so I, um, I had this idea that I would write a story that was inspired by or, or a kind of a riff on uh, Moby Dick, which is one of my favorite novels. And I think it's just this, this great big <laughs> whale of a novel. And, um, and at the time, my wife was pregnant with our, with our younger son. And I thought, well, man, you know, I, I better get this thing done. I better get it finished in a hurry, um, at least before the, the baby's born. I, I sat down to, to write my response to Moby Dick, thinking that it would probably be novelette, maybe a novella, but that was it. And I knew I wasn't, I, I guess the other thing I should say is I knew I wasn't going to write about uh, whaling because I find that practice abhorrent. But I thought, you know, fishing seemed like a kind of a, a decent contemporary analog. So um, I wrote the first, what would become the first three chapters of the story reasonably quickly. But then when I started into um, the, the middle section of the book, which, which is set during the construction of, of uh, a local reservoir, the Ashokan Reservoir up near Woodstock, the story just really started to grow. And, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, I think I might have a novel here. And I kind of freaked myself out because I thought, I can't write a novel. I'm not ready. Uh, so I actually put it aside to write another story. And then that other story became my first novel, so uh, House of Windows. So I, I think to a certain extent, I was just ready to write a novel at that point. And my brain uh, just said, okay, if we're not going to write this novel, we're going to write this other novel. But I would return to The Fisherman over the course of, uh, you know, every so often and um, work on this and, and work on that. And finally, uh, what happened, and it was funny, you know, my agent every now and again would email me and she would say, um, hey, you know, you, you're doing anything with the fishermen? And, and she would say, you know, if you're not going to do anything with it, that's fine. There's no pressure. But if you do know what happens, because I'd let her read the early part of it, um, if you do know what happens, please let me know, because I'd really like to know the end of the story. And my wife was always very supportive. And so what finally happened was, I, I thought to myself, I've got to get this thing done. I've just got to, I've got to bear down on this thing and, and finish it. And Jeff Ford had given some advice to, to Laird Barron when Laird was writing the Croning, his, his first novel, um, first full length novel, Laird had, uh, uh, Jeff had said to Laird, when you write this novel, because it's your first novel, um, especially you're going to feel the urge to play it safe. You're going to feel the urge to be really restrained and don't rock the boat. Don't take too many chances. And he said, fight that urge, you know, fight it with, with all you've got. And so that entered into 
the rest of the novel then, uh, more than I, I would say at that point, the sort of second half of the novel probably really benefited from that advice. And the, the revisions that I would do to the first part of the novel really benefited from that advice. When, um, you know, when I sent the book out, we had the same, uh, my agent and I had the same experience that I had with, with House of Windows, where the, the, the literary presses all said, um, wow, this is beautifully written, but uh, all this genre stuff. And the, the genre press has said, this is beautifully written, but oh, all this literary stuff. <laughs> so I, I sent it to, to uh, Ross Lockhart at Word Horde Press just because Ross is a friend. He had worked, uh, he'd been on the staff editing um, House of Windows. And uh, I just sent it to him and not really so he would publish it, but just so he would read it and tell me, you know, nobody likes this thing. Is it really that bad? And he came back with an offer to publish it, you know, right away. And I thought, well, okay. And, um, and then, yeah, you know, it, it had much greater success than, than I could have anticipated. Um, it, it remained part of the conversation, if you will, for far longer than I had any right to, to expect. And it's, it's one, of those, one of those facts for, for which um, I, I just remain intensely grateful. Yeah, it blew me away because I, I picked it up because I love stories. Again, it's a King thing because I haven't mentioned yet in this but i'm i'm an obsessive stephen king fan and it, it has that feeling that i first encountered in stephen king of old men sitting around a stove in a you know a local store telling a story of something creepy that happened in the town but it also really is so rich in like setting and local texture and it sounds like something your grandfather told you that you might just be passing on and i wonder if there's something around the hudson valley where you live that that, that kind of conjures that that kind of that kind of, of chill um is it a creepy place in reality in some ways it's a lovely place um it's it's my 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 wife my son and i every now and again we'll we'll say to each other sort of out of the blue man you know we really live in this in this lovely place it gives us you know that new york city is um, an hour and a half away by bus or train and boston is is about three hours away by uh, by car so we have access to these major population centers if if that's if that's what uh, what we want but we can also drive up into the catskill mountains it, you know half an hour takes us up there and we can go uh right up into them and you can feel like you're you're you know in the middle of nowhere so uh, on the one hand it's it's I, I think my own use of the place if if you will in that way the, the sort of exploration of it in my fiction it, it's it definitely derives from from what I saw King doing with Castle Rock and and, and Maine in, in general and his work. The very first, well, not the very first, but an early horror story that I wrote was set in Maine because I just figured that's where you set horror stories, you know. So so part of it had to do with with reading King and then as a, a freshman in college reading Faulkner, and those two really reinforced one another. I, I think from them really came this sense. Uh, you know, Faulkner talks about, I think it was in, in uh, uh, well, what was published as Sartorius, but I think it's the, the complete, the un, unedited manuscript or the, the uncut manuscript is called Flags in the Dust. He talks about discovering that his own little postage stamp of soil was, was worth writing about. And I don't. I don't feel exactly like this is a postage stamp. I actually feel like it's 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 a it's a it's a lot. Um, it's it's huge, and and the area benefits from having quite the history um, in terms of the the European presence here. 
and the the Native American presence here goes back even even further than that. So there's there, there were ways in in which um, that there there is a wealth of material here, and it, it's one of those things where you know you dig just a little bit, and you suddenly discover there were all these crazy things that have happened here. And if you if you dig down even further, there, there's more and there's more and there's more. One of uh, one of my real delights this past spring and, and summer has been taking uh, taking my son up to the Catskills to go uh, to go fly. He, so he could go fly fishing, and I could I could sit by the streamside and read. And um, you know, you just drive among these immense mountains and and discover these these little out of the way towns or or houses or or just strange strange structures you know a buddhist monastery down the down the end of a, of a long and winding road and you just think oh okay and so yeah the 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 feeling that i've had i i guess is the more i i i sort of dive into this place the 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 more there is especially in terms of fiction the the, the more there is to to explore yeah it really feels like a world as you say, it feels like the, the world of the fishermen rather than the real Catskills. It feels like a world that has got layers of history. So as you say, like the European descendants, the Native American people, and obviously a, a, a weird speculative history that goes even deeper into the strata of the place. It's a, a fully-fledged mythology. And do you have any... Would you ever return to the mythology of, of, of that world? I know you're having some short stories, but would you ever go back and further elaborate upon some of that well that, that mythology in the way that king does with castle rock and things like that yeah absolutely um i i have two novels that are directly related to the the fishermen i i wouldn't exactly say sequels but at the very end of of the middle section of the fishermen there's a reference to rayner who's who's been the the sort of the i don't know magician hero i guess you might say of that section um disappearing for a week towards the end of his life and there's um there's a novel that 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 talks about what he did while he was away for that week and it involves the uh the catskill aqueduct um it was a tunnel that was uh that was built 1100 feet i think it is under the surface of the hudson river to carry that water from the reservoir down to to new york city and it's it's about some some things that happen in that in that space and so that's more of a direct follow-up or, or directly related uh, to uh, like a nephew or something like that, you know, to the fisherman. And then there's also in that in that middle section of the fisherman, there's a reference to a group of guys who are clearing trees, uh, who discover in the roots of one of the trees that they pull up this this strange crystalline object, which uh, which then the disappears. eye, the, the, the eye that's baffled me ever since I read it. <laughs> now here's the funny thing: that is loosely based on something that actually happened when I was doing my research about the construction of the reservoir, I, I found that these guys pulled up a tree and they found some kind of crystalline structure in its in its roots. My guess is it was probably something like a maple tree, some sap had gotten out, there'd been a lightning strike and it crystallized it, or, or something along those lines, you know? In the writing of the book, I thought, man, that's just, you gotta include that. And, and it became a little bit more of an object. So there, there's, another, there's another novel that deals with, with that thing. And and what and the uses to which it's it's put, and that's off the top of my head. That's like what I have. I have a number of other novels that I'd like to do as as well. And it's possible that they will touch on some of this as as well. I guess I, I'd kind of like to be in a position 
you know, somewhere between King and Straub, you know, King wove everything together for a while into the whole Dark Tower mythos. Straub has been a lot looser, although he's had the Tim Underhill character who's recurred in a, in a number of his novels. Um, I would be happy to sit somewhere between those two where there's, you know, some recurring characters possibly or, or some recurring ideas. Maybe every now and again, there's a, a, a gesture towards some kind of larger mythos but maybe not quite as extensively tied together as, as, uh, as King has, has done. John, listen to me. Give us the novels. Just, just, just give us the novels. I need to read. <laughs> and no one gets hurt. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Yeah. Like you've told me where you live. Give us the novels. <laughs> that's yeah. That's, that's, that's titillating to say the least. Well, okay. I want to know what that eye is. I need to know what the eye really is. Anyway, to, to finish off, I'm asking each guest on the show to answer for what I'm calling rapid-fire questions. And, and what I mean by that, basically, is that I'm going to ask you a question, and I want your gut reaction to it, your first thought that comes to mind. No filter. Just tell me what, what you think. Is that okay? Absolutely. Right. Okay, here you go. Four questions. Number one, what was your gateway to horror? Reading Stephen King's Christine when I was 14 years old. So I was a freshman in, uh, in high school. Uh, the book came out in paperback. I had actually given King a try the summer before with Cujo, and it hadn't really done it for me. But there was something about this, this book. I, I don't know. I just had a feeling about it. I read the book, and it was like, you know, Saul on the road to Damascus. I just immediately thought, this is what I have to do. This is the... The, the whole rest of my creative life has to be that this is the channel it, it has to follow. That, that is quite the impact of, of a bad Stephen King book. Well, you know, and it's one of the reasons that I've been so fascinated by the topic of influence because I, I you know, because Campbell talks about that finding uh, Lovecraft stories and just that was it for him. And King alludes to it as well, finding um, a collection of Lovecraft stories that his father left behind. Yeah. And so those kinds of, you know, conversion experiences, if you will, they, they really fascinate me because it doesn't happen for every, every writer, every artist. Some people, it's a sort of long and winding road to get there. But just that moment of, of just being magnetized towards something is, is, is one I find really interesting. I, I would argue that Cujo is a far better book than Christine, but, you know, <laughs> each to their own. If you could recommend one book to our listeners... What would it be and why? I would recommend Peter Straub's Ghost Story, which is, you know, it's an older, an older book and an older one of Peter's books for, for that matter. But I, I think for what it, the, the moves that it makes as a, as a horror novel, the, the, if you will, the territory that it opens up for, uh, for a horror writer, for, for horror writers is, is really just astonishing. And it, 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 after all these years, I still come back to it and still find find new things in it. And I I think that you know Peter is is he certainly is is one of the the iconic figures in in horror fiction. Um, but I, I think sometimes because of that, it's possible to forget just how how exciting and dynamic and daring a writer he is. I, I would say I would say Ghost Story as a as a sort of gateway to, to, to the books that follow things like Shadowland and, and Coco and the Throat. What piece of advice would you give to a fledgling horror novelist? Patience. I, I would say you have to be in it for the long haul. You have to, I, I would recommend a couple of tricks or, or whatever. 
figure an amount that you can do every day. And that may be a very modest amount. It, it, it may be a page. It may be a paragraph. Commit to doing that amount and, and do that amount. Don't think to yourself, ah, I'm going to whip through the whole, you know, Stephen King wrote a, a novel in 48 hours. Uh, the Running Man. Yes, he did. And he was, I think certain substances may have helped <laughs> with the writing of that, of that novel. I don't advise that. I think set, set a realistic goal for yourself and work to fulfill that goal every day. And if, um, if nothing else, you, you'll have done that. Uh, you have to, um, I, I think it's not a bad idea to work either early in the morning or late at night, like, like basically a time when the internal editor is asleep. For me, the internal editor hates getting up early and goes, uh, and, and goes to bed early for that matter. And, and that makes it easier then for, for me to, to work. And I think just be patient, give yourself time to get your work done. And then once the, the thing is done and you type it up and you send it out, start working on the next thing. Be patient. It's going to take a while for you to get a response and all that sort of stuff. Don't spend every five minutes on social media saying, I wonder when I'm going to hear back about my novel. Start writing the next novel. Brilliant. You heard it here first, folks. John Langan says, do not fuel your novel with cocaine. <laughs> and lastly, my favorite question, because, you know, we are talking scared. What? truly scares you at at the very personal level the loss of consciousness the the um so so not just death but the disintegration of consciousness and knowing that your consciousness is disintegrating and and knowing that you're slipping into nothingness and there's there's nothing you can do about it and possibly even in some strange horrifying way being able to experience that that nothingness for for a moment or maybe longer well that's quite the bummer to end on <laughs> i'm not quite sure where to go with that now other than other than to say thank you very much john for taking the time it's been a great conversation thank you thank you so much for having me it's it's been a real pleasure to to be able to talk to you and i only wish that i could lob a question back at paul tremblay but that will uh, that will come i'm sure there will be some point where I go back to Paul for the next novel he brings out. So if you email me a question, I'll be sure to ask it to him. It's a deal. Excellent. Thank you very much. Please do stay safe. I hope you and your family stay well through the rest of the year. And I will hopefully speak to you again soon. Absolutely, Neil. Take it easy. I told you John knows his stuff. I'm not sure whether I feel smarter by association or dumber in comparison. You know, just by listening to this little podcast, you've been gifted a whole course in American literature and the history of the Catskill Mountains. If that's not worth hitting the subscribe button for, then what is? Every week, I like to go through and just pin down some of the titles that were mentioned in passing in case they pique your interest, but you didn't have a pen to hand. So this week, John mentioned Robert E. Howard's Wolf's Head and Other Stories. We talked about Stephen King. He mentioned Christine, Cujo and Skeleton Crew. And Skeleton Crew is probably the best of King's early short story collections. It might be the best he's ever done. John's friend, Laird Barron, has written the Isaiah Coleridge series of sort of grimly dark crime novels. And so far, the titles in that series are Blood Standard, Black Mountain and Worse Angels. And... Laird also wrote the Thomas Ligotti-inspired story 
that John mentioned, and that's called More Dark, and you can find it in the collection The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All. John's other friend, Stephen Graham Jones, who's getting a lot of reviews and a lot of news this year, he's written the short story Raphael, and that's in his collection The Ones That Got Away. And lastly, John mentioned a few times Peter Straub's Ghost Story. Now, I share a love for Ghost Story myself. I struggle with Peter Straub at times, but there's nothing quite like Ghost Story out there. It's a tale of old men telling scary tales and dealing with a very real terror that's emerging in their small town. It's a very wintry novel, so it's a good one to get to the top of the list, top of the TBR pile as the night's drawing. Do me a favour, stick a review on iTunes. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, then you know the drill by now. Reviews increase exposure and everyone helps. Uh, and I'd like to give a shout out to Terry Smith for sound editing the show each week and taming my shouty voice. Lastly, if you have any comments or questions or suggested reading, you can find the show on Twitter at TalkScaredPod, or you can find me directly at NACMAC, and that's spelled N-A-K-M-A-C. I'd love to know who you'd like to hear from. Otherwise, have a great week. Wash your hands, smell the flowers, visit graveyards, read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. 